Welcome to this episode of We Believe You, advocacy, resources, and healing around interpersonal trauma. I'm Casey. And I'm Jessica. And I'm Marie. Hi, and welcome to episode 14, our seasonal recommendation show. I'm Casey, and today I'm joined in the studio with Victoria and Jessica. Hey. Hey, everyone. So Victoria is joining us this season while Marie has been out of the office, so you'll hear a new voice on the podcast. Victoria, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, for sure. Hey, I'm Victoria. This is my first experience doing a podcast, and I'm loving it. The work that Casey, Jessica, and Marie are doing is so important for survivors, and I feel blessed to be part of the team. You may be wondering who this random advocate is, so I'm going to tell you a bit about my background. I'm a first-generation college graduate and earned a dual bachelor's in sociology and women's studies from CSU in 2017. I'm now a VAT-trained graduate student in the Department of Ethnic Studies. I'm super excited about my master's project, which is looking at complex trauma in the lives of survivors and alternative paths toward healing. I'll be doing some workshops at CSU in the spring, so look out for those. Before I came to college, I worked as a massage therapist, energy worker, and guided meditation teacher. I also worked as an advocate at Crossroads Safe House during undergrad, so I came into the WGAC with a little bit of advocacy experience. Right now, I'm pursuing certifications in grief massage and somatic experiencing massage therapy, which is a type of trauma work. I'm also working on a mindfulness mastery badge through CSU Online, which is supposed to make me really good at mindfulness. We'll see how that goes. I don't know. My hope is that all this work will make me a better advocate and a better massage therapist at my new company, Adana Wellness, here in Fort Collins. My personal experiences as a white, working-class, single mother and survivor helped me understand the importance of being honest about dominant identities, especially whiteness, while also healing from trauma. Outside of work, I like to hang out with my four kids and partner, make soap, go to comedy clubs, and rage about white supremacy and the patriarchy. Thanks, Victoria. It's awesome that you were able to jump right into this whole podcast thing, and with enthusiasm, too. So before we get rolling with some new recommendations for you all, we thought we'd share a little bit about what we have coming up this season. So this season, we're going to be doing a three-part series on reporting. I'll be hosting the second episode in this series, which is focused on reporting interpersonal violence to the university through the Title IX process. I'm also going to be doing another episode that highlights the barriers male survivors face when seeking services. I'll be doing two episodes this season. First, I'll talk about the police reporting process for survivors, which is one of our three-part series on reporting. I will also talk to you about forgiveness, which is a complicated journey for many survivors. And as January is Stalking Awareness Month, we thought it would be fitting to dedicate an episode to talking about some of the history, warning signs, and things to do about stalking. I will also be working on the reporting series by hosting a panel of survivors who will discuss some of their experiences engaging in various reporting processes. Finally, I have the task of introducing a little bit about this episode. And while each episode is important, the recommendation show is quickly becoming one of my favorites because we get to do some great recommendations to share with you all. Jessica is going to talk about a book for male survivors called Victims No Longer. Victoria will be talking about a TED Talk on intersectionality and a meditation podcast called Live Awake. I will round out the episode talking about one of my favorite authors, Roxanne Gay, and the book she edited called Not That Bad. So this leads us to our first recommendation, a book that's focused on male survivors called Victims No Longer, The Classic Guide for Men Recovering from Child Sexual Abuse by Mike Liu. The book was written in 2004, so it's been around for a little while. 
but it's really regarded as one of the go-to books for male survivors of child sexual abuse, and several male survivors we've worked with have found it helpful. I picked up the book when preparing for this season's Barriers to Service for Male Survivors episode, and I felt it had some good insights. So the book is broken up into four parts. The first part talks about child sexual abuse, while the second part highlights men and masculinity, including some of the specific challenges male survivors face. Part three discusses surviving child sexual abuse and the after effects of the trauma faced by male survivors. The book finishes up by going into depth about the recovery process. When talking about the impact of child sexual abuse, the book details several different survival strategies that are common to male survivors. One of these strategies includes the masks that men wear in order to cope with the painful reality of their abuse. Oftentimes, male survivors will feel they need to mask their internal realities by presenting something else to the external world. The book explains, quote, Masks have many functions. You can hide behind them, disguise or decorate yourself with them, or use them to achieve a desired effect. Many survivors, disliking what they perceive to be their real selves, will carefully cultivate another image, one that they feel is more acceptable, attractive, or self-protective, end quote. So here are a few examples of the masks when wear. A mask might show up in a man who creates an intimidating persona to hide his insecurities, while other men struggle with the need to constantly placate or please others as a means of avoiding conflict. I've also seen men become extra comedic, while others adopt a teddy bear personality. The book details other survival strategies, like forgetting, denying the abuse, distancing, pretending everything is fine, numbing, compartmentalizing, or even perfectionism. And as I mentioned earlier, the book talks a lot about the healing process for male survivors. A major part of this process, according to the author, is getting in touch with emotions and feelings around the abuse. I love that the book explains learning to feel as, quote, it took a long time to learn to deny your emotions. It will take a while to recover them. The process is a natural one. You haven't lost your ability to feel. That is an innate part of being human. It has been hidden away. It needs to be found, dusted off, and brought into the open. You don't even have to search. When you are encouraged and offered aware, non-judgmental caring, the feelings will present themselves, end quote. Our society doesn't teach men to feel or to express emotion, at least not anything besides anger or frustration. So starting the process of learning to feel can be confusing and overwhelming for many male survivors. I love how the author talks about working through feelings and discharging emotions. He says, quote, in the right environment, all expressions of emotion are therapeutic. The problem is that we often confuse the healing of our hurts with the injuries themselves. Crying is not grief. It is a way of getting over your grief. Trembling is not the same as fear. Rather, it is a part of letting go of fear. In the same manner, embarrassed laughter, yawning, raging, and even rapid, excited talking are parts of the healing process that get mistaken for symptoms of the problem. End quote. So some of these weird things that show up are actually ways survivors can discharge the emotions that are trapped inside. I love this message of accepting the strange ways that these emotions might show up on their way out. So we know that our trapped emotions can often lead to physical ailments when they remain inside for too long. 
and often it takes more and more energy and effort to keep them locked inside. But what no one tells us is that discharging these emotions, so learning to let them out in a safe way, is ultimately the key to healing. And here's the thing. When we see emotions as a discharge, we can recognize that releasing them is deeply and profoundly healing. This is how we move on from abuse and is a key element of the recovery process for any survivor. So there's also a whole chapter in the book dedicated to finding a therapist. It talks about some of the reasons people avoid seeking counseling, like feeling like a failure or not feeling like the trauma or its impact was bad enough to warrant seeking help. It talks about important things to consider when choosing a therapist, as well as ways to go about finding one. Additional chapters cover discussions of confronting abusers, clergy abuse, forgiveness, and ultimately moving on. One of the really cool things about this book is that it concludes with a whole chapter specifically written for partners, family, and friends of male survivors. One important thing to note about the book is that it can be triggering. Dispersed throughout the chapters are statements by male survivors that can provide details of their trauma that any reader might find difficult to read. Sometimes, however, these stories can be incredibly validating when a survivor is able to recognize that they're not alone. There are other men out there with similar experiences who are struggling with healing too. So the last thing I'll tell you about this book is that it's written specifically for male adult survivors of child sexual abuse. So unfortunately, it leaves out information on how sexual assault or relationship violence affects men. However, I'd certainly recommend the book if you're a male survivor of child sexual abuse. I'm just not sure it's applicable to wider forms of abuse. But do keep in mind that the book may take some time to get through. I actually found it quite dense at times. So I'd recommend reading a little at a time to let yourself digest it all. And certainly if you find yourself triggered by any of it, feel free to skip the parts that trigger you or set the book down for a while or forever. You get to choose. Thanks, Jessica. Victims No Longer sounds like an incredible resource. I'm going to switch gears a little bit and talk about theory. Now, I've been known to totally geek out on ethnic and women's studies theory, which I could probably talk about until you pass out from boredom, unless you geek out too, in which case, let's talk. Today, though, I'm going to talk about one specific theory called intersectionality. This concept has shifted a bit since its beginning, and I think it's important to understand the roots of it. In 2016, a black legal scholar named Kimberly Crenshaw gave a TED Talk called The Urgency of Intersectionality. Kimberly coined this term in 1989, although we find the roots of intersectionality in women of color feminisms, like in the Kambahi River Collective's 1977 work called A Black Feminist Statement, which can be found in the book Words of Fire, an anthology of African-American feminist thought. Now in her talk, Kimberly discusses the start of her theory by talking about a case of workplace discrimination. In this case, a black woman was being discriminated against at her job and wanted to seek legal justice. However, the legal system didn't know where she fit because they couldn't determine if she was experiencing racial discrimination because she was black or gender discrimination because she was a woman. Kimberly goes on to explain that black women exist at the intersection of race and gender, which means they experience both racial and gender discrimination at the same time. Now, intersectionality has shifted a bit into being more about the intersections of all our identities and their impact on our experiences, 
like race, class, gender identity, sexual orientation, and many more. And this is so important to consider. But this is not quite what Kimberly is talking about in her TED Talk. She describes intersectionality as being more about the intersections of marginalized identities and how these intersections impact the lives and experiences of folks living under multiple oppressions at the same time. She also says these identities are impossible to pull apart and look at individually. They must be considered simultaneously. Intersectionality is an important concept to think about because survivors who have multiple oppressed identities can find it hard to seek services, and this may even make them less likely to be believed. For example, if a black woman was assaulted by a black man, she may choose not to report to police because of the very real potential of police violence against her abuser. On the other hand, she may also feel like she's selling out her gender by staying silent. This is one example of how intersectionality can show up for survivors. For more information on racialized barriers to service, check out Marie's discussion in season one about barriers to access for people of color. Anyway, Kimberly's TED Talk is a great way to get introduced to the concept of intersectionality or to help you understand it a little bit better. You can find Kimberly's TED Talk on YouTube or at TED.com. Also, if you just Google Crenshaw intersectionality, it's literally the first thing that pops up. Victoria, that sounds like such a great resource. And it's just one of the reasons I'm so glad to have you join us on the podcast and in the office. The new resources and knowledge you bring are so helpful to the students we work with. And if any of you listeners out there have any recommendations you think we should check out, please let us know. We're always looking for something new to recommend to folks. My pick for this time around is a collection of stories. And it's similar to We Believe You, which is a book that Jessica mentioned in a previous recommendation show. They are similar in that they both are books of essays that convey real stories written by the people who experienced them. The major difference between these two books is that We Believe You focuses on abuse that happens at college, and my pick, entitled Not That Bad, Dispatches from Rape Culture, edited by Roxane Gay, has a wide and varied experiences to share. Let me first say that this is not a book that I could sit down and read all at once. I needed to take it a little bit slower, because some of these stories are raw and rooted in deep pain. This particular book needs its own trigger warning. You will read actual stories with varying degrees of detail. In fact, the first line of the introduction has Roxane Gay writing about her own gang rape for when she was 12. And in a way, I really appreciate this about how she writes. She is so unapologetic. If she has to live this reality and you want to hear from her, then this is what you hear. It is powerful for survivors to speak up and speak their truth, no matter how hard it is for people to hear or read. It is powerful because being able to voice your lived reality can help the survivor believe in its truth. It is powerful because the reader might find some understanding about interpersonal violence that they were previously unaware of. The more we talk about stories, the more this reality is exposed, the more we can stand up to people causing harm as a collective and say, no more. You have to stop hurting people. The better we all will be. Which is what this book, Not That Bad, can help with. Gay writes in her introduction that buying into the notion that what happened to her was, quote, not that bad, held her back from healing. And this notion is so present in so many survivors that they don't want to believe the true depth of just how bad it was. And if they can tell themselves it wasn't that bad, then maybe, just maybe, they may not have to deal with how bad it actually was. 
Many of those stories in this collection deal with the messages authors told themselves, messages they were told by others, and how those messages can hurt so acutely. There are so many parts of this book that I appreciate, from the diversity of authors who are multigendered and multiracial, to the variety of stories ranging from the shame of sexual desire to adult survivors of child sexual abuse. These essays really do give a full picture of the depth of the issue. For survivors reading this book, it is so powerful to know that you are not alone, that others feel the way that you do. For support people reading this book, it will give you a glimpse at what your person might be going through and experiencing. For the person who just wants to learn more, this book will help you know deep in yourself that we can't ignore this issue. We have to stop minimizing people's experiences, and we have to find a place of caring to seek understanding so that we can join in the fight in holding perpetrators of these acts accountable. This is a hard but necessary book, and one that really is for everybody. It is necessary because the writers let us into a well-kept secret. Survivors keep their shame silent. One author named So Mayer writes, If you survive, you have to prove it was that bad, or else they think you are. Surviving is some kind of sin, like floating up off the dunking stool like a witch. Vanessa Martier writes, I wish she, my mom, told me about what some men do. I wish I listened. I knew I was dirty and disobedient and deserved to be punished. And XTX writes, Sometimes you will be forced into things that you don't want to do. Sometimes you will be made to feel bad you don't want to do the things. After the things are done, you will feel like a bad person. These feelings will never go away. The way you are taught to be a girl will become how you are as a woman. A woman who is at her core, not good enough, without worth, tarnished. These three snippets are just a few of the examples of the ways in which messages survivors receive can play into self-blame and hatred. It is a theme that shows up again and again in this book. I wish I could leave you with a feel-good story about how it gets better, but that isn't this book. These stories in this book aren't ready for the it-gets-better conversation. And don't get me wrong, there is a place for that conversation. If you're looking for a conversation like that, it lives in one of our other recommendations. This recommendation is for people who need to hear about the thick of it, the why of it, and this is a necessary part of the conversation. Thanks, Casey. That pick, even though it's hard, sounds like an amazing resource. Now, I know we've talked about some heavy stuff in this episode, so I'm going to share one more resource that might leave us on a happier note. I'd like to talk to you about a podcast that has had a huge impact on my life and the lives of some survivors I've worked with this semester. It's called Live Awake. And it's a meditation podcast that offers both reflection and guided meditation to bring listeners closer to healing and to their authentic selves. It is hosted by Sarah Blondin, an author and guided meditation instructor based in British Columbia, Canada. On her website, Sarah describes her journey to living with her eyes wide open. She has this to say about her journey. Quote, she decided after waking from what felt like years of sleep, that she would live forevermore wide open to all that came to be in front of her. She decided that living awake was a choice. And in that moment, she became free. 
And in that moment, she chose to be the beam of light that reaches toward all other life, to be the beam that assists the earth in breathing and loving others awake. I think choice is a beautiful way to describe the healing journey. It is so hard to get past trauma and often takes a daily effort to keep moving forward. Some days can be awesome and others are shitty and miserable. If we give ourselves grace and choose to do the best we can with each day, no matter where we're at, then we can really shine. Remember that your healing journey is your own and you get to define it. Sarah offers many insightful episodes on her podcast that can be beneficial in the healing journey. I find it to be good for both beginning and experienced meditators. A typical episode lasts for 10 to 15 minutes, and Sarah will talk about the subject of the episode, then lead you through a guided meditation for the last five minutes or so. Episodes include topics like remembering your worth, healing through letting go, and when we must endure. One particular episode that resonated with me is called, I Would Like to Give You Permission. In it, Sarah invites listeners to be still and embrace their authentic selves or the person they were before the world told them who to be. She invites us to embrace our truth and love ourselves unconditionally. I think both Sarah's voice and her choice of music are beautiful and calming. This podcast may not be for everyone, but I recommend you give it a try. Live Awake can be found on SoundCloud, and certain episodes live on the Insight Timer, a free meditation app on Google Play and iTunes. You might also consider checking out Sarah's website at sarahblondin.com. That is S-A-R-A-H-B-L-O-N-D-I-N.com. And please remember, you are worth your own loving kindness. So that's all for this episode of We Believe You, advocacy, resources, and healing around interpersonal trauma. Please remember that the WGAC is here to provide support for all CSU students 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. To reach an advocate, you can call 970-492-4242. If you have feedback, thoughts, comments, questions, or want to be interviewed for our podcast, please email WGAC at colostate.edu. That's WGAC at C-O-L-O-S-T-A-T-E.edu. For more information about advocacy and the Women and Gender Advocacy Center, go to www.wgac.colostate.edu. You can also find the WGAC on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. A big thank you to Xavier Hadley for creating the music used in this podcast and to our partnership with KCSU here at Colorado State University. For more KCSU content, go to kcsufm.com. Thanks so much for listening.